Good morning, Millington Baptist Church family. Thank you for allowing us into your home and friends who are watching. Uh, it's time now for our morning message in the book of Romans. Today we're starting part two of our series through the book of Romans that we're calling Behold New Life, Living and Loving as Heirs. Uh, because that's what we just learned about in Romans chapter eight, that we are heirs of God. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love. And chapter eight was just an amazing climactic chapter of all that the gospel uh, says and has for us who have faith in Jesus Christ. So open with me, if you will, to your Bibles. And I just wanna remind you of something that Paul had said towards the end of Romans chapter eight. He said this very theologically deep statement. He said, and those he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. And so now Paul is gonna dive deeper into what he meant by that statement. And as we move into Romans chapter nine, uh, this does contain the subject of predestination. Now that's, I know, a big theological word, but it just basically means to determine someone's future in advance by God's divine decree. And there's a lot of debate about this term by scholars of the scriptures. On the one hand, you have people known as Calvinists or uh, those who are reformed and they uh, generally affirm uh, predestination and election and these biblical terms. Um, and then you have other uh, theologians that are uh, Arminians who uh, still affirm predestination and election, but they say it's somewhat conditional on our human response based on our own free will. And then you have some other positions kind of in between. And so there's a big debate about this subject and uh, it can be kind of uh, thorny as we get into Romans chapter nine. And so hang in there. I hope to try to explain some of these issues uh, to to us as we as we go along. Uh, on a on a lighter side, I did hear a a humorous joke about this topic. Uh, it's about a Christian man who died and went off to heaven. And when he got there, he found there was two lines. One of the lines said predestined, and then the other line said chosen. And so he got in the line that said predestined. As he made his way up to the front, there was a guard at the front, and uh, he asked, "Why are you here?" And he said, well, I chose to be here. And so the guard said, well, I, you know, I think you've got the wrong line. So he gets into the other line that said chosen and he waits there and works his way up to the front. And the guard says, well, why are you in this line? And the man responds by saying, somebody made me come here. 
And so uh, there you have kind of those two positions. Wh which, one, which one is it? Uh, now, some people actually skip over Romans 9 through 11 altogether because uh, these chapters are difficult to understand. Uh, but we believe that would actually be a great mistake. Uh, these words are in the scriptures for our benefit. And when it comes to words like predestination and foreknowledge and election, those are not concepts that are made up by uh, you know, people like Whitfield or Edwards or Luther or Spurgeon. Uh, this is not a concept that John Calvin came up with. These are the words we find in our Bibles in Romans chapter 9. And so we've got to deal with them. These were the words written by Paul himself. Now, it's always dangerous to tackle uh, from the pulpit such a controversial doctrine. Uh, but as the saying goes, fools rush in where angels fear uh, to tread. And so here we go this morning. And let me just make a personal comment about this section of the book of Romans. These three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, have made a personal impact on my life uh, more than any other section in uh, the scriptures. When I first started to understand what was here in Romans 9 through 11, it was as if uh, the last piece of the puzzle uh, fit into place for me in understanding the Bible. What God is doing uh, on earth for heaven's sake, what he's doing through the Gentiles, what, is, what he's doing through the Jews, and how he sits as the sovereign Lord over all, really comes to bear and becomes very clear in these uh, chapters this morning. And so I trust that this will be a blessing to you as we enter into this new part of our series. In our message today, I'd like you to see three different things that Paul communicates. And so there's three movements to the message today. First, we're going to see an anguish that we need to have for the outsider. Second, we're going to need to acknowledge the Lord who is sovereign. And then third, as an applicational pastoral point, we're going to need to be reminded that we have to avoid unbiblical extremes. Anguish over the outsider, acknowledge the Lord who is sovereign, and avoid unbiblical extremes. That's our plan for this morning. Grab your Bible if you don't have it already, and uh, avoid any distractions. And let me just encourage you to focus in on the Word of God this morning, and it will be such a blessing to you. Uh, let's pray so that God will uh, give us eyes to see what he has for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Everybody watch, and let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Heavenly Father, uh, we submit to you. Uh, this is your Word, and uh, we tremble at your Word. And so give us hearts to understand what you have for us. Take away anything that would keep us from hearing from you. And then after we hear from you, please remove any stumbling block that would prevent us from obeying what you have for us in your word. Uh, may Christ be exalted. Uh, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? Uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. Okay, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verse 1 begins like this. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Let's pause right there. First, we read here that Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish. Notice that word anguish. 
It means an intense physical or emotional suffering or distress. Now, if you're like me, then you and I hate this feeling. Uh, for the most part in our lives, we would like to eliminate anguish altogether. We want it to go away. But have you ever thought, maybe I don't anguish enough? Have you ever been concerned that you don't anguish enough? Does it bother you that sometimes you don't anguish over things that you should anguish over? Now, don't get me wrong, there's some things in life that we shouldn't anguish over and we anguish over too much. Our favorite sports team loses or, you know, I get a dent in my car, big deal. Why does that stuff bother me so much? Many of us are anguishing during this crisis of the coronavirus in our country. We're anguishing over our money or we're anguishing about a fear that we might get this virus or we're just anguishing that we've been stuck in our homes for this long. And I don't want to minimize in any way this very difficult situation, but aren't there other things that maybe should bother us even more? Why is Paul in anguish here? The answer is he is in anguish over his people, the people of Israel. Uh, the answer, he says at the end of chapter 9, is that Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone of Christ, the offense of Jesus Christ. She did not see him as her rightful Christ or Messiah. This is the first answer for why Paul has this sorrow, this grief, this anguish in his heart, to the point where he wishes he could even trade places. Paul says, for I could wish to be accursed myself for them. Uh, the point is that Paul's grief is so great that he stands on the brink of damnation, ready to throw himself in if such a thing were possible. Now, let me just say this. Such a thing is actually not possible. That's why Paul says, I could wish. Uh, the reason it's not possible is found four verses earlier in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Nothing, absolutely nothing can separate God's elect, Paul included, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, quoting John Piper here, God has not designed a world where a person can be damned because of Christ-exalting love. If there were such a world, then the biblical standards of the world that exists would not apply, and Paul stands ready to take Israel's place in hell. But he can't. God does not send people to hell because they love others enough to sacrifice for them. And so Paul cannot take the place of Israel. He can only grieve. Does that make sense? After this, Paul lists at least eight different advantages to being a Jewish person. Now take a look in your Bibles at this next section. He says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. There's the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. You know, sometimes people ask me, does the Bible say Jesus is God? Well, right there, it's pretty clear. He is God over all, forever praised. Now, some scholars treat Romans 9 through 11 as if there's no relationship between the previous eight chapters in the book of Romans. That is a severe misunderstanding. This section follows Romans 8 for a reason. Paul has just finished talking about how nothing can separate us from God's love. And this leads him to ask and answer a burning question. 
If that's true, then how can God's elect, Israel, be separated from God's love? How can they be cursed and cut off from Christ? What about the kingdom that he promised the Jews? What about the land he promised Abraham and David and all of those promises that we find in the prophets about this coming messianic era for the people of Israel? If nothing can really separate us from God's love, then how did this happen to God's people, God's chosen people, the Jews? That's why Paul makes this astonishing statement in verse 6. Take a look. It says, It is not as though God's word had failed. How can that be true? How can verse 6 be true? But it is not as though the word of God has failed. That is the issue in Romans chapter 9. Romans 9 is an explanation for why the word of God has not failed even though God's chosen people, Israel as a whole, are not turning to Christ and being saved. And so in Romans 9 through 11, Paul is talking to Christian Jews in the church at Rome who are trying to understand why so many of their family members and so many of their brothers and sisters have not embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And here is Paul's first answer to that question. He says this, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now this is really interesting. Paul is going to re redefine some terms. He's going to give us some examples. He, he says in verses 7 through 9, uh, take a look at this. He says, Nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. He goes on to say in verse 8, In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Here Paul reaches back into the book of Genesis, chapter 18 and chapter 21, and Paul says, do you remember Ishmael? Ishmael was a child of Abraham, but Ishmael did not take part in God's sovereign plan. Instead, God chose to work through Isaac, who was the younger son, which is uh, basically a, was a, that was a scandal in that culture, that the younger son would be receiving the blessing. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, uh, this is like the part where Vito Cordelione chooses Michael over Fredo. It's just not the way it normally works. It's a scandalous decision. And here's what Paul is saying. Just because you were a physical descendant, that doesn't necessarily automatically mean you will carry on the blessing. It never has. Actually, we know that Abraham had at least eight other sons, but just because you were a physical descendant of Abraham, that was not a guarantee that you would be a spiritual descendant of Abraham, because not all Israel is true Israel, spiritually speaking. See, the Bible uses the term Israel in a few different ways. First, it can mean ethnic Israel. We see it this way used later in Romans chapter 11. But it can also mean those who are both ethnic and spiritual Israel, like right here, meaning those Jews who actually have faith in Jesus. Thirdly, the term Israel can be referring to just spiritual Israel. When it's used to incorporate Gentiles who have faith, we see this in Galatians 3, 
we, it says, we are the children of Abraham if we have the faith of Abraham. So here, Paul is redefining what it means to be a true descendant of Israel. And let me just remind you, if you've been in our series through the book of Romans, that this is actually not a new goal. In chapter 2, Paul said something very similar in verse 28. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to chapter 2 and verse 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision which is from the heart by the Spirit. And so what Paul wants his audience to understand is that we are saved by grace and not by race. Can you say that with me? We are saved by grace, not by race. This is so important, even in our day. The number one problem I face in explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to people is that most people think that because they were brought up in church or because their parents were Christians or they were just part of the Christian subculture, that God would automatically be accepting them into heaven. And so like Paul, at times I have to redefine for them what a relationship with God is. God doesn't have grandchildren. God only has children. It's not a relationship based on your background or your family. It's a relationship based on faith and grace. It's a personal relationship that each individual, each individual has to cultivate with God. A commentator and theologian Douglas Moo calls our text Paul's radical critique of the Jewish assumption of guaranteed salvation. There is no salvation that is guaranteed by ethnic, cultural, or family background. We are saved by grace alone. Now next, Paul moves on to another example from the book of Genesis that draws out this principle, an example from the next generation. I take a look at with me at, at Romans 9 verse 10. He says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Here in this next example from Genesis 25 verse 23, we have the twins, Jacob and Esau. And in this case, God's purpose and election occurred before they were even born, before they had done anything. It was not by their works, it says it was because of him who calls. The word calls there means to choose or to pull out. In other words, the only difference between Jacob and Esau was God's purpose in election. This is important because those who hold the, the conditional view of election say that God elects people because of what he foresees that they will do. But that's exactly the opposite of what Paul seems to be saying right here. He's saying before they did anything, God chose first and he chose freely. See, when we see the word foreknowledge in the Bible, like back in Romans 8 verse 30 and in other places, it doesn't mean that God foreknows something in advance. It actually means that God foreknows someone in advance. It's more personal and relational. You could say that he foreknows, meaning he foreloves someone in advance. This is why Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1 next. Look at chapter 9 and verse 13 in the book of Romans. Paul says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, 
but Esau, I hated. Now, some people get hung up on this word hate, and though the word can mean something like our English word hate, in this context, this word was just an idiom that had more to do with priorities than it did to having to do with any kind of emotional displeasure. We see this in the Bible from time to time. Like, for example, it says that Jacob hated his wife Leah. But they were married and they had 10 children together. What it means is that he prioritized Rachel over Leah. He preferred Rachel over Leah. He favored one over the other. Jesus also spoke about this word in the context of discipleship in Luke chapter 14. He said, if you want to come after me, then you have to hate your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters. And what that means is he wants first place. He wants the priority. He wants the preference. He wants the preeminence in our lives when we choose to follow him so that we love him so much that our relationship with other people almost looks like hatred by comparison. It has to do with priority. In this case, God clearly prioritized Jacob over Esau and gave him uh, the blessing. Now, I know that this concept is really offensive, especially to our modern American ears. But what does the scripture really teach here? It seems to me that the Bible affirms the reformed doctrine of election here in Romans chapter 9. Now, this is the way that I see the Bible being written. There are different ways to understand this, and I don't want to come across as if I'm the final authority on this. This is just one person's view. And so I'm sharing with you what I feel the Holy Spirit has taught me and through years of study. Could I be wrong? Yes. But this is where I am right now on this teaching to the best of my ability. But here's the other thing about this verse. If you know anything about Jacob, if you've read Genesis 25 through 35, and you know the kind of swindler and the kind of trickster and the kind of heel grabber and the kind of deceiver that Jacob really was, then you will see that what's most shocking in this text is not that God passed over Esau, it's that God loved even Jacob. God continually makes choices that don't make sense to us. He passes over the older brother in favor of the younger brother. He makes that choice before either one of them is born. That makes it impossible to say that God is choosing one or the other based on some sort of deservedness. Before they were born, God says, I made my choice. Just so that we would know there was nothing in Jacob at all that warrants God's selection. And brothers and sisters, as is the case with you and I, there is nothing in me or nothing in you that warrants God's love, that warrants God's mercy, that warrants God's grace. His grace comes after people that aren't seeking him at all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think of the very person who wrote these words in Romans 9. Paul, who used to be Saul of Damascus. He was persecuting Christians, going after them, throwing them in jail, until God came along and literally knocked him off his horse. C.S. Lewis, the atheist and literary critic, uh, said when he first became a, a Christian, he said something very similar about his own testimony. 
He said, talking about man's search for God or man seeking after God isn't quite right. Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. Jesus is the one who came to seek and to save that which was lost. C.S. Lewis said talking about man's search for God is a little bit like talking about a mouse's search for the cat. Now, I know that this is true in my own personal life. I know that, that God wasn't looking down, seeing something in me that warranted him choosing me. The doctrine of predestination and election has been the subject of consternation and division for hundreds and hundreds of years. And most people say, we don't like this because it's not fair. I mean, it's just not fair. Who does God think he is? God? It's not fair. This is exactly why Paul asks the question that he asks next. Look at verse 14 in Romans 9. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? That's a really good question, right? That's exactly the kind of question that we would ask if we're reading Paul rightly here. And Paul anticipates that we would ask that question. That's the question we're all asking. And based on Paul's anticipation, he gives some more reasoning quoting a verse from the book of Exodus chapter 33. Paul says this, look, he says, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Pastor John Stott in commenting on this passage said this, Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim God's mercy. It sounds like a complete non sequitur, but it is not. It simply indicates that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. See, here's the problem with my way of thinking, our way of thinking. We think that God is somehow obligated to show us mercy. We think that God is somehow obligated to show us grace. But if we're thinking about grace as if it's an obligation, then we're thinking about something, but we are not thinking about grace. God's mercy is by definition voluntary. Imagine this illustration. Let's say there was a very wealthy woman and because of the goodness of her heart, she decided to choose, let's say, 20 inner city kids and guarantee them a full college tuition. Maybe there was thousands of other potential recipients but could anybody really say that she was being unfair or unjust by not helping the ones who did not get chosen? No, why? Because she had no particular obligation to help anyone. In the same way, friends, God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone. God is completely free. Dr. James White wrote a book about Romans 9 called the, the Potter's Freedom, where he goes in depth about God's freedom here, his freedom to display mercy on whom he chooses. That is God's choice. Paul goes on to say this in verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Uh, your translation might say it's not based on the one who wills or based on the one who runs. 
Those are the two aspects that Paul is drawing out here. It means our salvation is not based on our will or our choosing or our running or our effort or works. No, it is entirely based on God's mercy, period, full stop. Now, some people raise an objection here. Some people say, well, doesn't the Bible teach that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance? We find that in 1 Timothy 2.4 and, and 2 Peter 3.9. And the answer to that is, yes, of course, that is God's ultimate desire. But there's two senses in which God's will is used in the Bible. There is God's will of desire, and then there is God's will of decree. God's will of desire may or may not come to pass, but God's will of decree will definitely always come to pass. Uh, Paul goes on now to give another example of a decree of God. We find that in the book of Exodus. Look at chapter 9 in the book of Romans in verse 17 now. Paul says, For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, you say, what's this business about God hardening Pharaoh's heart? Does it mean that Pharaoh was a, a great guy, a fine fellow, until God came along and turned his heart hard and, and cold and calloused? Not at all. Pharaoh was a slave master. Pharaoh was an infanticidal tyrant. Pharaoh was an egomaniac. The story of Pharaoh is the story of a, a rebel against God. We read in the book of Exodus that not only did God harden Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hardened his own heart at least five different times. What God did is he simply allowed Pharaoh to continue to rebel to go his own way so that he might send signs and wonders and glorify his power under Pharaoh's reign. And God simply lifted his hand of restraint and allowed the sin of Pharaoh to flourish. The great expositor Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, the world fell into sin, but God put a limit a restraint upon it, and this world would be complete chaos and hell if he did not do so. But the moment he draws back his restraining influence at any point, there is a hardening there. So that is one of the ways in which God produces hardening. He leaves them to themselves. Romans chapter 1 says, He gave them over. You know, the scriptures tell us that one day in the end times, God's hand of restraint, we read about this in 2 Thessalonians, his hand of restraint will be lifted off of this world. In that day, this world will begin to spin completely out of control into total chaos. Now, this is very countercultural, I know. Most people think that, you know, human beings are basically good. That is because we have never really truly seen what human beings are capable of without God's restraint. But we see this in a small glimpse in the life of Pharaoh. And we see what happens when God stops restraining. Now, God hardened his heart further, but does that mean that God was at fault because of him going astray or anyone going astray? 
Of course not. Uh, John Stott says, if anybody is lost, the blame is theirs. But if anybody is saved, the credit is God's. You see, this doctrine eliminates boasting altogether. And that is often our real problem with this doctrine. We want something to boast in. This is why we love the concept of free will. But how much free will did Paul have on the road to Damascus? Do you really want to say that he chose Jesus? See, here's the thing. We want to give God 95% of the glory for saving us, but we want to keep 5% for ourselves. So we talk about this thing we call free will. Now, there's a sense in which our will is free, but it is not what's called libertarian free will, where we can do anything and everything we want. I mean, climb up to the roof of your house and see if you can choose to fly away today. Our wills are limited in some sense, right? Let me put it this way. Picture a lion who is a carnivore and put on the one side of the lion a pound or let's say just a pile of meat and then put on the other side of the lion a big pile of vegetables. 10 times out of 10, that lion is going to go after that meat. Why? Because that is the lion's nature. Nature dictates desire and desire dictates choice. That's the way it works. Now here's the, what the scriptures teach. By nature, we in our sin desire not to please God, desire to run away from God, desire to do what we want, when we want, with whoever we want. We are not seeking after God. And our nature dictates our choices we make with our will. And so, in some sense, I am willing to say that I chose God. I, I am willing to say that. But here's the question behind the question. Did I choose God first or did he choose me first? In other words, if, if you back it all the way up before the beginning of time, which choice was first? I think the answer, according to the scriptures, is that it was God in his sovereignty. That's why 1 John chapter 4 says, we love him because he first loved us. That's why Jesus said in John 15 verse 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. There's a poem written by Josiah Condor, which says it well. Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. Thou from the sin that stained me hadst cleansed and set me free. Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind. The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. Now I want you to hang on. Because as Paul finishes chapter 9, he says something even more, more remarkable about God's glory. If you're with me out there, say amen. Turn in your Bible to verse 19. He says this, One of you will say to me, Then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Now that's a really good question, right? If we're following Paul's train of argument well, then that question would naturally come up in our minds. And it does. And so look at Paul's answer in verse 20. He says this, But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God?
Friends, I don't know the answers to all these complex theological questions, but here's what I would recommend. All good theology starts in the place of who are you, oh man, to talk back to God. This leads us to a very important point. When we look at this doctrine of God's plan of salvation, we must acknowledge the Lord is sovereign. Acknowledge the Lord is sovereign. Let's let God be God and trust that he does this better than us. Let me offer an illustration. Imagine if my wife was sick and badly ill and she needed some sort of emergency surgery. Well, I did not pursue any training in that field. So no matter how much I care for her, no matter how much I love her, I must entrust her to a qualified surgeon because I cannot do that job. Friends, if the job of the Supreme Judge of the Universe ever opens up, here are the qualifications. The right applicant needs to be all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly just, perfectly loving, and perfectly good. We are woefully unqualified for that position. We have no basis to second-guess the one who is. Therefore, we must acknowledge that God is sovereign and trust in his judgment and submit to him. I know this teaching is difficult to accept. I have found it very difficult in my life. And we're not saying that God's choice is just arbitrary, like any, meeny, miny, mo. That's not what this text is teaching. Paul is saying that there is a reason, but the reason is not found inside of us. And I would also just take it a step further. If we don't accept this teaching, every other alternative creates even more problems. If we don't accept this, we begin to compromise on the fact that we are saved only by grace alone and we have nothing to boast in and so forth. And so we must submit to the Lord as sovereign here. Now take a look at this last part of Romans 9. Paul says this, Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Wow. I want you to notice here that it's God who prepares the objects of mercy. But it's not clear that the objects of, of wrath are prepared the same way. In fact, many theologians, and I agree with this, say that the objects of wrath have prepared themselves for God's wrath. This is God's sovereign plan to put on display his glory. One type of object or vessel glorifies God in his justice. The other type of object or vessel glorifies God in his mercy. This is God's sovereign choice and his plan and his doing. We aren't God and we can't tell him what to do. I know this is very difficult to understand and I have wrestled with this for years. And sometimes I go, God, I just don't understand. But here's what we do know. We do know that God is perfectly just and he is perfectly good. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? 
and God is perfectly sovereign. But the scriptures say the secret things belong to the Lord. So for the rest, I say along with Charles Spurgeon, my brothers and sisters, whenever you put your hand to your brow and say concerning anything revealed in the scriptures, I cannot comprehend it. Lay your other hand upon your heart and say, nevertheless, I believe it. It is clearly taught in the Bible, and although my reason may find it difficult to explain it and I may not be able to discover any arguments to prove the truth of it, yet I lay my reason down at my infallible master's feet and trust where I cannot see. It's that posture of humility we have to take when we talk about these mysterious doctrines. And do you really want your destiny to be in your own hands? I don't. I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit came and rescued me. I am so grateful that the hound of heaven came and got me against my will. I know this is uncomfortable, but think about this objection of it's not fair for just a second. Do we really want God to be fair? Do we really want what is due us? Do we really want our wages? Because Paul said in chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin, Dave, is death. Listen, our only hope is God's unfairness. He's not fair. Thank God he's merciful. He doesn't give me what I deserve. That's really good news. Friends, listen, what makes the gospel offensive is not who gets left out. What makes the gospel offensive is who gets let in. Me. <laughs> you. And so, yes, the gospel is a massive miscarriage of justice. An innocent man was punished so that guilty people could be set free. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's really, really good news. And so as we think about this message and this difficult text and this difficult area of theology, uh, let me add as our third point today, a caution. A caution that we need to all take to heart. When we think about this, we need to be careful to avoid unbiblical extremes when we talk about these doctrines. What do I mean by that? Well, one extreme would be denying the doctrine of God's sovereignty, ignoring Romans 9 altogether, saying that salvation is just a free will decision. But that ignores a lot of biblical support. It minimizes human sin and it minimizes human depravity. It also might imply if we're free to choose, then we would also be free to lose our salvation. It creates all kinds of problems when we deny God's sovereignty. That's an extreme position. On the other hand, we need to avoid the other extreme position, which is to deny all human responsibility, to kind of drop into a fatalism. Say, hey, God's you know, already figured it out all in advance and he created people uh, in just in order to, to condemn them and God is, is, a, a, is a tyrant, he's culpable for evil. That leads to a kind, of, uh, a kind of doctrine of God that becomes repugnant to us. And when we think about just everything being based on fate, it leads to a, to a kind of paralyzing us into inactivity. And so we can't deny human responsibility either. Instead, let me encourage you right into what I call the messy middle. 
uh, a lot of times the messy middle is where we need to walk. The messy middle is a, is a theological concept that's called compatibilism. Compatibilism is what the scriptures teach when they both uphold the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. This is the belief that God's unconditional sovereign election and human responsibility are both taught in the scriptures, though our finite minds cannot fully comprehend how they work together, and so we must hold them in tension. Uh, J.I. Packer actually wrote a book about this where he said this, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught us side by side in the same Bible, sometimes indeed even in the same text. It follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other. Man is a responsible moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he is also a responsible moral agent. God's sovereignty is a reality and man's responsibility is a reality too. Amen. That is a biblically balanced view. And I want you to think about how the Apostle Paul himself lived his life in light of these truths. Did he hold to God's sovereignty? Yes, we see that in Romans 9. But did that mean that he slipped into kind of a passivity and fatalism that ignored his responsibility? Absolutely not. The Apostle Paul was the greatest missionary to have ever lived. He spent his life spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ all around the Mediterranean Rim. Just because Paul acknowledges that God is in control over all these things, that does not necessarily mean that Paul doesn't continue to share the good news in every synagogue, and it doesn't mean he doesn't continue to pray for those who need to know Christ. Look at this verse at the beginning of chapter 10. Paul says in chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Do you see that? He still prayed. His heart was still that God would grant them repentance, like it says in 2 Timothy 2.25. Why? Because he had this great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And brothers and sisters, we must follow the example of the Apostle Paul. And so let's ask ourselves that question as we close today. The challenge for us is this, do we have anguish in our heart for those who don't know Jesus Christ? There's a basketball player named Mike Penbert. He used to play for the LA Lakers. He talked about a dream, or I should say a nightmare that he has from time to time. He said, in the height of my success, I didn't share my faith with the players on my team or the people that I was surrounded by when I was in the NBA. He said, so I have this dream of the players that I played with and, and they're just in the dream with their hands up kind of dropping into hell and their hands are up like this and they're just looking at me, he says, and they have this look on their face like, you knew? You knew about what was going to happen? You knew about all this and you, you didn't tell us? You just wanted to be our friend. You just wanted to be our buddy so, so that you wouldn't be uncomfortable so that we could go through all of this. You knew about this and you didn't share? He said, I have that dream and it just kind of haunts me. I can't get it out of my head. That thinking is exactly the kind of thinking we have in Romans 9. Paul has unceasing anguish in his heart for those who don't know Christ. And so let's ask ourselves, does that bother us? Does that bother me? Does that bother you?
I don't know if I have enough anguish about this. Do I? Do you? Let me encourage you this morning to ask God himself to give you anguish over those who don't know him. We already have anguish over certain things. I'm just saying, let God transfer our anguish to the right things. Let God put it all into perspective for us and move us uh, from that anguish we have and that anxiety and that fear that we have over other things into an energy and a positivity that we can use even in this crisis right now for the glory of God to boast about Jesus Christ and all that he is. Ask God to give you his eyes for those people in your life who don't know Christ. Ask God to break your heart for the things that break his heart. It's not that we don't have anguish and passion. We do. We have what we need, but sometimes it's being used improperly. And we need to turn that around and begin to use that anguish to build the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In fact, let's pray that right now as we close today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Heavenly Father, we pray right now that you would break our heart for what breaks yours. We pray right now for those that we know who are apart from Christ and don't know the gospel and don't believe. We pray that they might be given the gift of repentance. We pray for opportunities to share Christ with them, even today, even this week, and that they might respond and be saved. Lord, may you even do it now. If someone is watching or listening to my voice and they are still under the guilt of their sins, if you're watching today and you are apart from Christ and accursed, may you, I plead with you, don't stay there. Christ has come to be a curse for us. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Trust him as your only hope of salvation and you will be saved in Jesus' mighty name, I pray. Amen and amen. Thank you guys for watching today. Let's continue.